Hi there, everybody. Uh, this is Dr. Randy Bach. I am here, and today is, from what I can tell, November, uh, what is it, 10th, because it's not Armistice Day. It's not uh, the 11th hour of the 11th yeah. uh, day of the 11th month. Um, so one day before that solemn day, uh, we have, yeah, I'd like to say happy, happy news, but it's happy for me to, to be uh, in this virtual room with uh, Dr. David Bell. Uh, he's brilliant, uh, forthright, and uh, uh, what's the word? He's, he's, um, he tells the truth, you know, so he's, he's, uh, able to look at, uh, a lot of, uh, the pandemic items with expertise because he's uh, a PhD in, in public health, I believe. Um, and he has long experience in the public health field. And I believe he's uh, seen that world from both sides, from both the private and public or the say NGO and private spheres, but I'll let him elaborate on that a little bit. Um, so he's been on once before, and he has a, a new article I'd like to get to. Um, we'll go over that. It's uh, at, at brownstone.org. But I'll, I'll let you fill in uh, my feeble introduction, and I apologize uh, for gaps and so forth. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, what's going on, and what's going to make us either happy or miserable over the next little while. Okay, yeah, thanks, Randy. It's good to be back. Um... Yeah, okay, so I'm a public health physician, uh, worked in um, North Australia and then in WHO. I've got a PhD in population health and disease modeling. So you're so, a medical you're a medical doctor too. I'm right? a medical doctor. And, Fair yeah, enough. I, I, I thought PhD. that, when, but when you said PhD earlier, I, I thought maybe I misremembered. I apologize. No, I, I should have stopped, but I just, you know, I was interested in other stuff, so I mm -hmm. did a PhD. Um but yeah, so I worked in WHO, um, mostly on malaria, but also a bit on SARS when it first, SARS-1 when it started, um, for about eight years, um, some other infectious diseases, then in Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, which is a diagnostic foundation in Geneva funding body, um, then for a Global Good Fund, which is a Gates development lab, or was in just outside Seattle. Um, yeah, based in the US, originally from Australia. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess while we're here, you know, I, my background is working in low middle income country health, uh, in outbreaks, infectious disease, introducing technologies. So, you know, the, what's happened the last two, three years is pretty relevant. Um, I, I've been in sort of the edge of some of the conversations on pandemic preparedness and so on and involved in um, outbreak control in the past. And so I think I'm trying to think actually whether it's even end of 2019 when there's rumors around, but certainly January, by the end of January, 2020, it's clear stuff was going wrong um, because the people who were really keen on having a pandemic were making a lot of strange noises. Um, so and, I, I'm going to stop you there. Just yeah. that's, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, the people who were keen, who were keen on having a pandemic, uh, how, how, how is that a possibility? We public health world and so forth. We're into the public, we're into their health. Um, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. So, okay. So if you look at the history of pandemics, according to the World Health Organization. We had the big Spanish flu in 1918-19, yeah, which right. is you know, over 100 years ago. 
before we had antibiotics for anything, uh, et cetera, before any sort of modern medicine intubation, et cetera. So most people then died during that outbreak from secondary bacterial infections, which they wouldn't now because you give them antibiotics. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Anthony Fauci's written on that in the past. I mean, it's not a controversial thing. I've heard, I've heard that name before. Yeah, he's um, a retired doctor. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, yeah, there, there was a, um, I think, Asian flu in 1957, 58, Hong Kong flu in 68, 69. Mm -hmm. And then they called swine flu a pandemic, but it killed less people than normal flu every year does. So it wasn't mm -hmm. really a pandemic. Right. I remember there's a, a different kind of a, sort of flu. A disappointment over in that. In 2009. Right. So, you know, and pandemics you, are rare. They're, do, you count, rare do, you count, do you count HIV as a pandemic? Well, that's an interesting one. Um, you can count anything as a pandemic. The, so the old sort of idea of a pandemic, which is why we say the, you know, these flus and also the particularly the Spanish flu in 1918-19, is that it was a disease that spreads more or less globally and kills a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, the, the Black Death, bubonic plague used to come in pandemics. It used to be cholera pandemics that would at least cover continents. Um, mm -hmm. That's how the, you know, the idea of the WHO started actually in the 1800s. Um, that they started having treaties around controlling cholera spread across borders. Then after that, smallpox and so on. Um, so but now a pandemic in the WHO's working definition is a new pathogen or a variant of a pathogen that causes some sort of disease that spreads across borders. Hmm. So any almost any variant of the flu or anything that there's no requirements for severity so they've kind of downgraded like, the term the term they, they've downgraded the term to anything that crosses borders um so the problem with that is that stuff crosses borders all the time because borders are artificial things on earth mm -hmm. and um and so you can call anything a pandemic which is fine if it's just a word but when it means so therefore we shall do all sorts of things that are very costly to the rest of the population, then it becomes a problem, especially if the people who make those decisions um, don't have any clear um, sanctions when they do the wrong thing. And if uh, even more so, if they make a profit from intervening and forcing intervention. So that's sort of what happened over the last couple of decades. The, the, the WHO's funding, the World Health Organization's funding has shifted a long way from almost purely country funding and for core budget to a lot of private funding and almost all now about 80, 90% to specified projects. So the WHO has to do what the funder wants. And as you get private people and there's prominent private people who are big farmer investors then obviously they're going to push to for the WHO to do things which uh, I mean they may see it as a good thing as well but it's going to use a lot of pharma um, it's a simplistic approach as well it's, it's easier to think oh let's give a vaccine or let's give a drug than 
let's go and support countries to train enough health workers that they've got a health worker for every 800 people. Uh, that sounds really boring and it's not going to get on the BBC, whereas inventing a new drug and rushing it out to some population somewhere will get on the BBC and mm-hmm. we'll get you more funding. So we, 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 there, there is more excitement in an outbreak than in routine public right. health. Right. Routine public health is what saves people. The, the reason that living, that the life expectancy has increased in Western countries and rich countries is overwhelmingly improved nutrition and improved living Sanitation. conditions. Sanitation. Yeah. Sanitation slash living conditions. Yeah. So your toilet, you know, your sewage runs off to some treatment center rather than into the street. So there's also, yeah, wrapping. Yeah, yeah um, all that. So, you know, and that's not controversial. It wasn't, you know, when I did public health, we were taught that and we were shown the evidence. Mm-hmm. I think overwhelmingly now people coming out think it's vaccines that have done this. Vaccines have helped around the edge, but they came after most of the improvement. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's factual. It's not controversial. It shouldn't be controversial. So if you look at low-income countries, improving the economy, improving living conditions and nutrition is the sure way to improve life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Vaccines will help, etc. Yeah. But it's and they don't die from occasional outbreaks. I mean, we can come back, you mentioned HIV. You know, it's not HIV is a it's an endemic disease. Yeah. It's, so it's pandemics are an outbreak, which means it goes up and then it goes mm-hmm. away. Malaria, TB, HIV, these are endemic. I meant in its initial phase, but. Yeah, you could argue that it was a pandemic that became endemic, perhaps. Yeah, I I kind of Um, think it's not because it's it's it doesn't really spread through the entire population. I mean, you you need to be kind of an active participant. It's a little bit like the, you know, the opioid crisis. Um, You know, I I have not caught opioid. You know, I haven't caught drug addiction, Mm. um, even though there's an opioid epidemic. And maybe you could argue there's an opioid pandemic and there's a lot of fentanyl, and all, you know, there's a lot of virulent drugs out there, but I haven't caught it. And nobody might, you know, God bless, but nobody, you know, God forbid, whatever, nobody's caught it. So there's some things you can catch, some things you can't. I mean, monkeypox, you know, I don't think I'm really uh, first in line to catch. And mm. so so there, there are diseases out there, no doubt, and they might be widespread, uh, but they aren't necessarily um, pandemics. I mean, I, I think arguably something like malaria is probably a closer um congener to the concept of of, of pandemic but you know, yeah, so malaria has been around forever so it's not right. something that's suddenly arisen and cross borders but okay. I, I don't think a pandemic has to get everyone it, it has to get a substantial part of the population i mean you know it, there's a lot of ways you can catch hiv through sex through needle stick injuries etc um you know it, it's limited but i'm um, most adults have sex so they do an activity which can transmit right. yeah. hiv so excellent point um, so I think, you know, it's reasonable to say that was a pandemic, but now it's an endemic disease mm-hmm. and you need to do different things. You cannot, you know, we're not at a point where we've got to, you know, at the very start of an outbreak, you might suppress it by doing certain things, you know, isolating sick people, etc. That's not going to change HIV now because, you know, it's an endemic disease. It, it, you treat it in a different way. You can't afford to impoverish society to address HIV because it's going to take 
a long time and you can't impoverish society indefinitely. So, um, and that comes back to, you know, these endemic diseases and particularly malnutrition, which causes um, people to die a lot more from all these endemic diseases. Um, they're readily fixable. That's where you sort of get your bang for the buck in terms of mm -hmm. money in this area. Right. And a lot of that is just strengthening communities to look after themselves so that they're right. not dependent on the outside. But it's not something that an individual can easily make a profit on. Someone like you or me, or, you know, you can get a job for an NGO, you can go and you can get a reasonable salary helping with this stuff. But you can't make, uh, you know, $10 billion a year in some corporation, but you can do that. If you say we've got a pandemic, lots and lots of people are going to die unless they have our product. Right. So that's sort yeah, of so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You know, I, I'm going to, I don't want to divert too much, but I've got a couple other books in the works mm. and, and one of them's on narcotic, uh, de-addiction, getting mm. out of out of narcotics. And uh, so researching that book, um, you know, the United States has had an opioid epidemic, as we've said. Yeah, as um, one. Well, yeah, it's been various mm. waves and and and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, and I'm not going to go into far detail, but but it abated uh, during uh, the you know Trump presidency. And he didn't address the opioid epidemic at all, um, except for very peripherally in the sense that the economy got better. So in middle America, uh, people had more hope. They had better jobs, they had better aspirations and so forth. And they didn't really need to potentially, you know, resort to making the world go away, um, which is probably what opiates are. They're, they're you know, they're when, when your dreams are better than your reality. And if you could tip it the other way around, um, then you don't necessarily, anyway. So, you know, but, but my point is that, that he's, you know, obviously he's not an NGO. He's not, uh, you know, kind of the classic uh, public health um, helper, and he may not even, you know, have that on the top 50 of his, of his items. Uh, but, you know, a lot of things get better to your point about public health is that things get better, um, when things get better. So, you know, if, if the world around you gets better, if there's civilization, if there's lack of, um, you know, if there's lack of, of disorder, uh, lack of crime, uh, lack of this and that, you know, societies can thrive. Um, there's, uh, you know, he's a comedian, but I kind of found him as a great political uh, philosopher in a sense. Uh, I don't even remember P.J. O'Rourke. Uh, he just recently died. Uh, he wrote for the National Lampoon back when I was a kid. Um, and he went on, you know, I was kind of a libertarian, uh, so forth. And he wrote one of my favorite books called Eat the Rich. And he goes country by country. And, you know, he, he finds that uh, Tanzania um, is, you know, has, you know, an educated population. They've got the rule of law. They've got great weather coastline they got mountains they got uh, gold uranium they got you know every mineral and so forth and and they're dirt poor and then he compares it to hong kong at the time which was uh, before you know the takeover um and they're here they're living on a side of a rock um they're they're crowded like crazy and and who's wealthier you know they have no natural resources and whatnot and and so you know it's it's the, basically his point is that it's human ingenuity that kind of makes wealth and obviously, you're going to be safer and living better with longer life expectancy, oddly enough, in you know highly, highly, highly compressed Hong Kong than in Tanzania. Um, so that's my kind of, uh, I apologize for the diversion, but um, 
you know, I, I think it's reinforcement to your point. But, you know, a lot of people who are in the industry, it seems, they, they, they don't want that. They want to be part of it. They want to be putting their ingredient, you know, if, even if their ingredients, cinnamon or cardamom or ginger, they may not be part of the recipe. You know, if that's what they sell, they kind of want that to, that to be part of the solution mm -hmm. to, to the public health issue. Did I make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, I can comment whether Trump made life on average better or worse for people, I, I guess, or whether that was the reason for the opioid epidemic um, tamping down a bit. But it, it's not surprising that it's got worse again. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's pretty orthodox public health, although it's hard to find a public health person who will even talk about it now that if you make people poorer, they die sooner. They, and, you know, drug addiction, drug addiction is one of those things, but even if you take away drug addiction, alcoholism, smoking, all the rest of it, they still die sooner. And, uh, um, part of that, I mean, it's just probably having control over your own life and mm -hmm. that reduces stress yeah. and having reduced stress improves your immune status, your ability to fight mm -hmm. disease, et cetera, probably to fight cancer and so on as well. So, you know, th th this isn't controversial. This, this is what really gets me about the whole uh, stupid arguments at the moment in public health over COVID, because it, it should not be controversial in the least that if we may, if we stop people going to work, we reduce their income, there will be deleterious side effects this is just absolutely standard and therefore for a lot you know if you want to lock down which is a um, criminal term it's what they did in jails before 2020 and now they do to lots of normal people yeah um i, I hear i hear that new zealanders like it yeah australia unfortunately but the so if you want to do that i mean fine but you're an idiot if you don't say and the the harms will be this right. and right. therefore before we do it this is the expected gain this is the expected harm which one's going to be better and when you do that you're thinking okay if we save a few people who are 85 but we kill a bunch of people who are in their 30s uh you know maybe we should look after the 30 year olds mm -hmm. because they got to lose sixty years. Yeah, no, we, we don't we don't want to ignore them. I, I I had my my now late mother in law in in the basement. We would have let her out, but she liked it down there, and she was there for a decade and all through COVID. And she you know wanted the vaccines, and I, I would have given her a vaccine every day if that's you know what she really really wanted, um, because you know she would already lived to ninety, and so she was you know at, at the margins uh, with either benefit or risk. It, it was not going to mm. you know make much of a shade of a difference. And she lived through the, the pandemics, as it were, uh, but, you know, she died from natural causes. And it was a lovely thing in a way, not not that she died, but that she got to die on her own terms and with loved ones around, et cetera, et cetera, as far as we're all going to die. And so she died, I think, as well as one could hope and expect. Mm. Uh, but that being said, you know, I have to say that, you know, in my conversations with her, she was lucid throughout and she's smart. She was smart gal. Um, you know, I, I don't think she ever really factored in the, the detriments to her grandchildren uh, who were, you know, varying between their, you know, teens and 20s and whatnot. Mm. And, you know, heading out into life and trying to, you know, meet and date and, and, and greet and mate mm. and, 
and learn and and employ themselves and so forth. And I, I and I think that they they all suffered uh, to varying degrees um, from that. And uh, you know, it's it just I, I couldn't really impress upon her that you know the lockdowns you know were not just about her own. You know, she was cocooned almost literally. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, we were careful and cautious around her, but, but that, that was fine. And we were okay with doing whatever she wanted to, to have done within her realm, but it wasn't, it wasn't that hard in our particular situation to get, you know, make that kind of a pearl to isolate that, you know, within its own shell and, and, and not, you know, affect, I mean, we, we led our own lives, our own way for the duration. So we had dinner parties and we had people mm-hmm. here and whatnot for their, whatever their own fear level would accommodate, but we didn't stop anything because I felt like it was a, a, a problem. COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2 was an initial one was kind of a problem for elderly, but you know, if I'm not a smoker. I'm reasonably lean, all that kind of stuff. I don't think it was a problem for the, for people, you know, without comorbidities. And, and I was willing to take my chances with it because I think that's what we do all the time. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I apologize for the diversion again, but um, uh, I hope I haven't waylaid you too much. I, I um, as, as partial segue, I would like to, you know, maybe show your article a little bit and and, mm-hmm. and bring up some of the points uh, that about how public health has been diverted. But but maybe I'll, I'll see the floor to you uh, if I uh, interrupted. All right, go ahead. Um, yeah. All right. So um, I have to say that uh, um, your article. I, I'm so happy to uh, have you back um, because you you write brilliantly. I mean, it's really um, a gift. And uh, you know, the term clairvoyance. Uh, you know, originally meant to to see clearly, clairvoyant. And so I'm not saying you're clairvoyant for seeing the future, but I think you're clairvoyant for having read the past. Um, and so I, I that's uh, that that is a compliment. <laughs> I hope you um, appreciate it. Um, so let let me just see if I can pull this up in the right way for us. Um, so here here is. Uh, I, I love the graphic. This is the uh, Brownstone Institute, um, whom, which I admire. It's run by uh, the meritorious Jeffrey Tucker. And here is uh, uh, our David Bell, Global Health and the Art of Really Big Lies. So I'm not going to be able to read the whole article. I will pr- provide a link for our readers and viewers um, to look at. Um, but I guess the, ba- the basic concept is you just shade a little bit. People are, are suspect. But if you give something mm-hmm. as a... Um, you know, kind of a big break from the truth, and people question themselves if they're in the right place, and and it, it kind of forms a coalescence of 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 uh, I guess altered reality. Um, but you know, the part of the article, the, the meat of the article that I, um, for my own personal taste, and maybe have a, a different favorite, is is the way that public health has been changed uh, to accept um, uh, certain other I guess realities. So I'm going to I'm going to just going to, you know, pause here to, you know, have you maybe direct me how you'd like to approach your article. Okay. well, yeah, I I mean, I I preface the article with uh, because an experience I've had where, um, you know, a a workplace where a, a certain person above me, boss, um, used to tell really, really big lies uh, but as in you know he just completely makes almost makes stuff up out of the earth and if you if you certainly looked at numbers you think that this is physically impossible yeah but 
and, and people people there used to get quite upset at this when I was first there and even asked me because of my role, you know, if I could do something about it or, and I found after a few years that people, the same people were just going along with it and you know, that, that they realize there's no sanctions for liars like that and that they're actually effective. And I think, I mean, after a published the article, actually someone sent a quote from Adolf Hitler. I wish I had it with me, but, and I checked it as a genuine quote and he, he's, um, unfortunately, but tellingly saying exactly the same thing that if you just twist the truth a bit, then you leave people to think, right? It's, yeah, I think, it I think it's be Joseph, right, but in my experience, that's not quite right. Maybe I think it's you know. Joseph Goebbels, uh, the quote. No, there's, there's an Adolf Hitler quote as well. Oh. Goebbels said, um, yeah, yeah, he, he said a similar one that if you tell, you know, a, a lie, a lie often told. enough, big enough, often enough, then it'll become a truth. Hitler actually said that, and you can look up if that, if you tell a really big lies, and I, I heard this after in the article, but then you, you take people so far from their experience of reality, that they think, well, a person authority couldn't just make up, couldn't be fantasizing. Yeah. A bit like the emperor with no clothes. Yeah. I mean, he, he, the emperor's got no clothes, but he couldn't be fantas. You know, someone like that couldn't be fantasizing. So therefore, he must have clothes, and it must be me who can't see them. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it works. So if you if you tell small eyes and twist the truth a bit, and you say, ah, oh, you know, lockdowns, we just it might work for a little bit, but whatever. But you know, but we we need to weigh it against the harms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then um people will start doing that and think oh it doesn't work but if you say we have to lock down we've always locked down in pandemics this is the right thing to do it's standard global you know standard public health policy um that it's the only way to stop a virus etc that natural immunity will never do it well, which is complete garbage because like, like otherwise we'd all be dead as a species so mm -hmm. you know in the last pandemic, the proper one, which was 68, 69, we had Woodstock, which maybe your grandmother went to. Yeah. And so, you know, it's the opposite of a lockdown. And that was because we know that with a respiratory virus, you know, aerosolized virus, that sort of separation doesn't stop spread, etc. It's going to happen. And that you don't want to reduce people's immunity by, you know, reducing, reducing their diet, increasing their stress, etc. You, you want to have them and WHO has written this in the past as an, as much normal life as possible and minimal stress and minimal fear so that they can carry on normal as they cope with the inevitable infection. And, but lockdown was presented to us as this is standard public health policy has always been this way. It's the only way to handle a virus like this. And that from everyone saying it, they knew it was a complete lie if they had any basis in public health. But it, it was said with such conviction and such, you know, they never mentioned the harms of lockdowns. Mm -hmm. They never mentioned any alternative. They never pointed out that inevitably, um, 
natural immunity is going to be better than a vaccine to a single protein anyway. So waiting for the vaccine is a bit silly and you're getting infected anyway. Yeah, crazy. It's crazy, yeah. But this was put across to the public as, you know, there's no question. And um, so people start believing it. They don't start picking around the edge and saying, what about this, what about that? Because they think well, all of these people in authority are saying it, it must be true. And the people in authority know that it's not true, but for whatever reason, and I guess that varies, they're willing to play the game. So the, 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 you know, the, the fact that, I mean, masking children in school, when, you know, we have evidence, even from COVID, that um, children, you know, if, you're, if an old person is affected from a children, so old people in households with children had lower mortality than, mm-hmm. um, than old people who caught it in nursing homes, probably because children spread a much lower dose, you know, in Sweden. Well, also, think, people in nursing homes are sicker, but... Well, they're sicker, uh, that's true, but... They, they and but because they're sicker, they get sicker with COVID. Yeah, because they can't fight as well, so they have a higher viral load. So they will spread more virus as well. So what you you know what you want in this situation is to have a very low infective dose and build immunity. So um, yeah, I mean, see, there's all sorts of reasons why closing schools, et cetera, made no sense. We also, we knew that it was, it would build inequality because, you know, a poor, if you've got three poor kids with say a single parent living in an apartment in DC and their school closes and their mother's working. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're, they're not going to be studying. They've, they've got, they've got Nintendo, uh, the outdoors, um, so yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I agree. This was this was a great inequality creator. It was yes because and, the, the, the suburban and, kids with you know moms with and dads with both degrees and so forth they they made sure their kids you know had the proper yeah. um, and they you know, could afford a screen each. They could afford. Yeah. They had their own bedrooms, etc. Yeah, and there's plus there's there's probably a greater discipline, you know, kind of for education to begin with. And the kids who need the schools more, those who are coming from you know other places where they don't necessarily use our same language or letters or whatever, mm. they need to learn those all those basics. Yeah. And my kids, uh, you know, I mean, unfortunately they had to live with me, but you know they they pretty much had the basics of of you know kind of discourse. And I'm a de- kind of a debating kind of guy, and you know we had a lot of reading material and so forth. And they're speaking English and they're writing in English from day one. But you know if you're crossing the border from uh, fill in the blank, you know Somalia. Or whatever you know, it might might you know language, alphabet, um, mm. standards, expectations, so forth, and that's that's school for better or for worse. And I'm not, you know, I went to public school in part, in private school in part, um, and I'm not as huge a fan of public school as I was when I was a kid. But um, you know, that's that's at least a thing, and it has uh, you know some genuine good to it, and it's not a genuine good if it's not there at all. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah, so we can pile on these harms. And if you, if you go to low income countries, it's sort of compounded. Um, so, you know, it, we knew all this, but we sort of um, we told lies about you know the severity of the virus. We told lies about 
things like lockdowns and how they were necessary and how they would make a difference when, you know, largely we knew that they would not. Um, you know, we, we've seen lots of lies about the, the vaccine, about, um, yeah. you know, the, 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 the statements that it would block all transmission that... Um, yeah. Well, it, you know, so in, in, defense, in defense of the vaccine, I actually, you know, I, I'm not... A, I, I've given out thousands of vaccines as a doctor and I've taken dozens of vaccines myself, mostly the flu shot over the years. And so I think the, the vaccine probably had a good, um, but... Yeah. But if it had been made in 2017 or, or 2019, it would have had a much greater good. You know, vaccines historically are before the illness. You know, this this concept we're going to retrofit the vaccine mm. for a population when when the the virus is, is advancing on. You know, this, I think people don't really realize kind of the dy dy dynamism of the virus-host interaction because viruses, mm. you know, replicate I don't know trillions of times, something like that. You know, per person perhaps and and so they have all kinds of opportunities for mutation, and they most of them are not going to be thrive. But every now and then, one mutation kind of hits the lottery, and is going to succeed, and that's going to get the people who have already built up immunity to the previous version of itself. And so there's this kind of this huge battle interaction where everyone's you know masking up and changing outfits, and you know so I guess it's a game of uh, I don't know if you ever saw the cartoon Spy versus Spy from Mad Magazine, but you know there's one gizmo and the other one's back to gizmo and anti gizmo. So there's back and forth. And, and so the, the, the virus, the vaccine, if it had done been, you know, say, given to all of humanity in 2019 in advance of the 2020 epidemic, well, fine, maybe that would have had. But, but this expectation that it would keep working when the, when the virus itself has advanced and put on different masks on top of its masks and changed out features and so forth, you know, it was clearly absurd. And I think that that's when it became, you know, part of this um, game, which I think you hint at in your article of, of corporatism. Uh, ruling policy and uh, you know crony capitalism and and so forth. I, I I don't think we've necessarily seen the other shoe drop, but I I will uh, not have a shocked face uh, when I find out you know how much contributions the pharmaceutical companies Moderna and whatnot um, Pfizer have contributed will have contributed to candidates who have you know kept the emergency use authorization in place far beyond its usefulness. Yeah, I, I'm you know regarding the vaccine, it's it's quite probable that it helps some people. Um, unfortunately, we haven't got good enough trials to know. So we don't right. know how it works in old people with two or three comorbidities who are the mm -hmm. ones at highest risk from COVID. So um, the, the, the problem has been, we've just been told safe and effective. We've been told stops transmission, etc. I mean, that, none of this makes sense. It doesn't fit with what we know about immunology, what we know mm -hmm. about the way the vaccine works. Um, you know, the CDC can produce trials showing that post-infection immunity is far more effective at stopping infection than vaccination. Right. So naturally. But, yeah. but then they can completely ignore that and say everyone should get vaccinated. Yeah. Even though they just published a trial on MMWR showing right. that there's no, you know, there's clearly no clinical benefit. There's an indiscernible difference. Right. So let me just ask you a quick, quick question. Has there ever, has there ever been a campaign to vaccinate people post facto? After the fact, after an illness? I mean, has that ever occurred? Uh, not except with, uh, only with like certain diseases where the vaccine we know wears off quickly and there's no, there's poor natural immunity or you, you get it once and you die. 
Well, that's different. Yeah, you're right. That's not after. I'm just thinking of tetanus and so on. There's vaccines where you take it, but I guess. But there's no there's no widespread tetanus going around, per se. No, there's no widespread. And if you had tetanus, you need so, to. So, so I mean, I, I just think. For example, I'm just trying to. I'm scraping the barrel, trying to think. Yeah, I just think categorically, this is this is you know, I, it's not a technical term, but I think you know, I find this weird and odd that. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine keeps getting pushed when the illnesses have already occurred. And especially yeah. the one that, uh, that I mean, I sort of get the initial vaccine, but the one that kind of irritates me, perhaps out of perspective, out of, out of deserved uh, scope is, is the new bivalent <laughs> vaccine, which I find like doubly annoying because part of half, you know, it's like asserts, I, I guess certs is out of business, but certs, you know, is a candy mint and it's a breath mint. It's, it's two mints in one. And so we have the bivalent uh, vaccine which is two things. It's, it's, it's basically uh, a vaccine against the common cold, Omicron, which you've never needed before and which already pretty much already everybody has already had. So it's like double useful use yeah. in of itself. And the other half is also doubly useless as a, as a second half because it's for a, a virus that SARS-CoV-2, which will never recur because people have immunity to it um, yeah. and, and everybody's already immune. And it's only there because it can, can kind of get under the limbo bar of, of the EUA. And it would never be able to, you know, get under that without that magical dispensation to, to you know, pass through. So I kind of find it as, as if, you know, that's a sop to the, to, you know, the governmental pharmaceutical complex um, to, you know, keep this, vac this vaccine out there without having to go through the same, you know, standard safety trials that any real uh, other vaccine might. Yeah, if you had people isolated on an island somewhere, um, that had no exposure whatsoever to COVID, to SARS-CoV-2, then giving that vaccine would make some sense. Mm -hmm. but, but giving it to people who, and especially young people who like aren't even at risk from the disease mm -hmm. in the first place, it makes no sense at all. And yeah, it's already to variants which are in the past anyway, as you said, which most people have had. Um, the virus is endemic. People will keep getting infected. As a new variant goes around, they'll get infected again, as they do with the other coronaviruses that are in common circulation. And our natural immune system will keep sort of updating itself as the, the virus changes genetically. And that's how we've evolved. It's how our immune systems have evolved to work. It's, um, again, that's not controversial. That's what every medical doctor certainly up to a few years ago was taught in medical school and basic mm -hmm. immunology right so yeah i mean we've been we've been told to start disbelieving all this and believe that we must have a vaccine i think yeah it's because, a very strange thing well it's strange but it's not if you look at the fact that the people who are pushing it by and large have made tens of millions or tens of billions of dollars mm -hmm. that it's just a rational thing to do if you want to make money yeah. Yeah. It's a sadness. It's, it's kind of like it's all been diverted. Um, you know, so just very briefly, I'd like to kind of get to the yeah. part of the article, my favorite part here. Uh, maybe I'll read it. Um, so the, these are these are things that we must now believe. So for healthcare workers to keep this consistent line has been necessary to introduce an array of new dogmas equally divorced from reality and contradictory to what they were taught and the organization proclaimed prior to 2020 pandemic. They, so th this, these are all basically counterfactual. These are things that people now have to believe, but they are obviously either absurd, not true, or both. 
Uh, so this is what basically public health pr promotes. Disease burden should be measured in raw mortality. So to your point earlier, so an 85-year-old dying is equivalent to a five-year-old dying of, say, malaria. Hmm. Uh, medium and long-term harms due to poverty and reduced healthcare access should not be considered. So you shouldn't consider the possible risks of an intervention, only the, the presumed benefits, say, of, of you know, a vaccine or whatever. It's appropriate to misinform the public on age-related risk. I have to say that I could ne never really find the U.S. data quickly enough, you know, th this type of thing, and relative disease burden, and better to instill fear in order to achieve compliance. Uh, growth of viral transmission in a community follows an exponential curve rather than a steady deceleration, the Gompertz curve, as the proportion of, of recovered people accumulates. So as the virus passes, they're going to be fewer targets for the virus. And exactly. so this is not really yeah. counted. Uh, so that where people are supposed to accept that banning students from school for a year protects the elderly while not locking in generational poverty for those young. Uh, cloth and surgical masks uh, stop aerosolized virus transmission, and all these analyses should be ignored. Uh, Post-infection immunity, uh, so having natural immunity is expected to be poor and short-lived, while the mRNA, you know, spike protein is somehow going to produce strong immunity. This is backwards, obviously. Immunity to uh, immunity to viruses is best measured by. I'm going to pass over this one. Um, uh, informed consent for vaccination um, doesn't include risks. And to that point, there are a few others I'm going to maybe get you know talk about here about pregnancy uh, that people are giving this. Uh, you know, mRNA to um, yeah. uh, pregnant uh, women, um, uh, despite the this, this fact that this crossed the placenta, there's been no toxicologic studies or obviously any long-term outcomes data because there's been no long-term ditto uh, regarding children. Uh, and I like this part here, I and mean, I don't like it. I, I, I find it absurd and irritating. And this actually factors into a little bit of my Zika book. Uh, pandemics have become more frequent and more deadly mm. despite the historical record and the progress of modern medicine indicating indicating quite the opposite. So I'm just going to read this little bit here. The above is all either unethical or clear nonsense, uh, contradicted by prior public health or orthodoxy. And then to your point about a big lie, if these positions are only slightly wrong, they would promote internal argument, blah, blah, blah. But people kind of like, if, if once they bit into this thing, they bite the whole thing. A little bit like the little old lady swallows a fly. She's got to eat the, the spider to catch the fly. She has mm. to eat the, the um, I don't know, I can't remember where the bird to catch the, the spider and then, then the cat to catch the, the bird and the, the dog to catch the cat and the, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, people wind up going down this, this um, kind of ugly road. And, you know, once you, once you uh, kind of, you know, I mean, I hate to use this word, but once you prostitute yourself, then it's just really a matter of when does the next transaction. I think it's hard to go back, you know, virginity or naivete or honesty, are, it's a hard thing to go back to. Um, you, you, it, it is, and it's not profitable. I think, I mean, you've, you know, you've written your, the book on Zika and so on, papers on that. It's, it's a similar thing. I was, you know, involved in some of the, the Zika stuff when that came out as well. I was working diagnostics and yeah, suddenly there is all this money for um, for Zika, which mm -hmm. was you know a disease that's been around for a long, long time elsewhere. And yeah, there there was you know the suggestions in which you've written about about um, association with microcephaly, which um, perhaps haven't borne out. But it, it even if they had, it, it was clear that um, from the fact that Zika was in Africa and elsewhere in the world and wasn't doing this, that at worst it was a, a new virus in a non-immune population. 
um, which would then um, rapidly become immune and Zika itself would not be harmful long term. But the, um, you know, talking about it in that sort of rational way and, you know, the, the limitations of the vector, et cetera, with geography, it, it was a stupid thing to do if you wanted a career in global health and in diagnostics because there was suddenly huge money for um, Zika diagnostics. And if you were a skeptic or you said, yeah, but many more people are going to die of tuberculosis or whatever, and that's mm -hmm. where you should be putting your money. That, that's not the way that you were going to get funded or get your team no. funded. No. So, you know, there was a myriad of tests for Zika suddenly came out. Yep. No, none of which probably got into very, you know, any great use, which wasn't surprising when you, you sit down and you look even then at what was happening. But there was a huge diversion of funds from stuff that was needed. Yeah, no, money's not out. money's not infinite. And, yeah. uh, you know, nor is our, like, I guess, attention in a sense. Uh, I find that, that, you know, not to stick on Zika too long, but uh, the thing that kind of the way, the same way the bivalent vaccine irritates me, maybe out of proportion. Uh, for Zika, the thing that irritates me out of proportion is the current trial going on in Baltimore at the, by, you know, sponsored by the NIAID. They had uh, basically half a billion dollars to produce a vaccine. And, um, you know, they, I guess, didn't have uh, Operation Warp Speed. They had Operation Snail uh, Slow or something like that. And so they never got one. And it, not all it's their fault because the disease, as it were, the, the, the syndrome Zika microcephaly disappeared. Uh, nobody cared about it anymore. And so they had money burning a hole in their pocket. They still had $110 million to find a vaccine. And so they were going to shunt some money to Brazil in 2018. And Brazil said, uh, you know, no mas, uh, whatever you say in Portuguese, mm. um, you know, basically no thanks, but no thanks, you know, because there, there were no people with, with Zika. Mm. And therefore, they, they, uh, the NIAID went against their own ethical standards, which they actually had uh, made an ethical panel, an ethics panel, uh, determine whether should, they should do any human challenge trials, which means to inject people. And so they were told no back in, in 2017. And a year later, they have this money. And they're like, well, we should do it anyway. But we're going to do it on Brazilians. And the Brazilians said, thanks, no thanks. And so they, they sat on another two years. And then this year, actually, uh, Dr. Anna Durbin in Baltimore at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, she started a trial to inject and infect uh, Americans, I think only women, uh, with Zika. And, and so, again, the same way that the bivalent irritates me, I mean, there's basically, you know, a, a rationale to do this, I guess. I mean, to, if you mm. wanted to produce a vaccine, if the disease were extant, were out in the world, you'd need a vaccine. But then you would need to get to, to, to inject people with it because you'd have a whole bunch of ordinary subjects anyway. So it's either dangerous enough that it's out there and a vaccine would happen, or it's harmless, in which case you don't need to make a vaccine. Um, mm. So you can't kind of eat your cake and have it in this case but that they're doing it. And, I, and again, I think that part of it, you know, from what we've seen with the vaccine experience in COVID is that I guess, you know, tomorrow, let's say they come out with a vaccine, you know, three months from now, they could easily say, well, you know, uh, you know, forget this guy, you know, this is my, 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 my promo for the book, uh, forget overturning Zika, let, you know, let's, let's make everybody on earth have a Zika vaccine. Like, yeah. why not? And I think that would be, you know, I mean, last I counted, there's 7.485 billion people on earth, uh, it's probably more by the time I'm done with that sentence, but, um, you know, it's like, 
you know, that 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 could be, you know, lucrative, I guess. I hadn't really, you know, seen the Zika book through the perspective of the the, you know, governmental pharmacologic complex. Yeah, no, I, I think I mean that's undoubtedly coming. Uh, there's mRNA vaccines being developed against um, RSV, other forms of, co of coronavirus, etc. Um, a bunch of other viruses. So you know, there's two issues here. One is mRNA vaccines, which maybe come back to, but. Um, you know, there's some intrinsic dangers with mRNA vaccines because what the, what the way they're working is the, the way they function. This is another thing which was you would almost get cancelled for for stating, but the way mRNA vaccines function is they uh, put mRNA, goes, foreign mRNA goes into your cells. It uses a mechanism in your cells, the machinery to produce a protein, which is a foreign protein, which is expressed by your cells. Your immune system sees that cell which is your own cell with a foreign protein it kills it because it thinks it's foreign mm -hmm. and it develops an immune response through that and you know we knew from pfizer's very limited biodistribution study in rats that it went particularly to the ovaries to it crosses the blood brain barrier into the brain it um goes to the liver testes etc almost everywhere in the body to varying extents not just the arm. So we, we are, when you take an mRNA vaccine, you're causing cells throughout your body to act as if they're a foreign cell. Mm -hmm. And you know, a virus can do that to some extent. A virus infects a cell, it does a similar thing, but that tends to be, say with SARS-CoV-2, it tends to be in the respiratory tract, not in the ovaries or the testes or whatever, the brain. So there's intrinsic issues with mRNA vaccines. The other issue with this is um, why do people have to have a vaccine if they don't want to? And the um, you know this is a question that I didn't think about much as a to my shame as a public health physician before COVID, but it's sort of you know you start thinking hard actually why are we pushing people or mandating pushing is one thing mandating people say kids in schools to have a measles vaccine. Um, I used to be think that was okay, but you get measles once you're immune for life um, mm. or you get one vaccine you're immune for life. So why does the next kid have to have, or someone else have to have a vaccine if you've had yours? Right. You are protected is a very effective vaccine at protecting you from measles. So th there is a lack of logic and this is where you think, well, is human you know, what is a human? Do, is a human, do they have agency? Do they, uh, should a person be able to decide for themselves what is done with their body? Or is it the role of some distant person like a bureaucrat or a government? I, I, I vote for the bureaucrat. Yeah. I want to, I, I'm, I'm not happy unless a bureaucrat's telling me what to do. Yeah. So, I, so, I'm sort of, I wake up aimless. Um, I'm just joking. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's well, a lot of people do like to be told what to do, I think, but, but we are very rapidly heading down the road just to finish where we are going to have probably mandated a whole bunch of mandated mRNA vaccines with very, with no long-term safety data with, you know, what we can see in VAERS for the current vaccine. So obvious concerns. 
And these will be mandated because there is a financial imperative for these companies to make money for their investors. And this is a fantastic way to do it. Yeah. And I, my, one of my former attorneys uh, back in the day, um, uh, he, I owned some property and he, he you know, advisedly said, uh, he said, just remember, local government is your best corruption dollar value. Um, and so I thought that was pretty humorous. Um, but to, to his point, you know, it was important to, you know, if you wanted to, you know, kind of minimize uh, problems on, on your property is to be nice to the local politicians and then they're nicer to you. And nice generally means that you go to their events and all that kind of stuff. And so leaving that aside, um, you know, because I don't I don't engage in corruption, but, you know, I think it's it's good to, you know, help support the people you want to, the restaurants you like. and all that. But I, but I just think he actually might have been wrong insofar as, you know, you know frankly, it's, it's probably not local government, it's national government. Um, that is your best corruption dollar value and, and possibly even uh, world government at some point. Um, and, you know, the, the, the ability to mandate something is not, you know, something a local government can do that easily. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, this is an interesting proposition. I'm not sure, you know, I'd have to think of the analogies, what the next step would be outside of, you know, um, I mean, I think there are some, you know, the way certain types of vehicles might be mandated out of existence. And then potentially certain types of houses. I mean, we've done it with toilets and the electric light, you know, the incandescent light bulb. Mm. You know, there, there are aspects in which, you know, cronyism, and this is actually the, the kind of one of the roots of, of fascism, um, you know, that, that, that was, uh, you know, national socialism, but the, the corporations were supposed to be on board with and part of the fascia, part of the, yeah. one, of the one of the strands within the, the strength um, of the fascia together, all these, um, you know, big, you know, bits of, threads of wheat all put together to cause greater strength was that the, the government, uh, this is kind of corporatism. So the government would do be doing stuff, but somewhat at the behest of or in, in league with the government. Yeah. Uh, that's what the, Mussolini said is um, corporate authoritarianism. Yeah. Well, it, I, yeah. That, that's it, a little it, more. Government working very closely with corporations. And, yeah. A little more succinct than I said it. That's what we're seeing now. I mean, this is, to me, this is fascism, this sort of mandating of mass vaccines made by these corporations, forcing people to take them and vilifying it. They're not, it's just pure fascism. That's what fascism is. Right. And yeah. So we're going to be winding down. We've um, gone nearly an hour and we have about uh, five minutes or so left. Um, so I'm going to cede the floor to you. I'm going to, it's not, not a, you know, in my nature to keep quiet. <laughs> I'm going to try and um, maybe you can give us some, you know, as a, a part of your clairvoyance, uh, instead of backwards clairvoyance, maybe uh, give us a little forward. Uh, it, it's really hard to know, isn't it? Um, I, I think, you know, we're in the US. I think the US is really interesting because we have this constitution that um, sort of stops. It, it clearly makes it difficult for fascism to really take hold. If you look at Europe and the EU and, um, you know, it's essentially, it looks like with a few exceptions of countries that are less happy with it, it looks like really there is a bunch of unelected bureaucrats in, you know, the EU who are really dictating a lot of European foreign policy and internal policy. Um, and they're doing things which is very difficult to do in the US. So 
Uh, I think some parts of the world, uh, and the I think Europe, unfortunately, is an example. Uh, I, you know, I hope not, but are uh, going to become essentially fascist states for a while. Um, I hope, yeah, it would be nice if that wasn't the case, but I, I, it's hard to see how things are going to change dramatically from the course run now. Mm. Um, in the US, I don't know, I think, I, I used, I mean, I used to think that um, a lot of the stuff in the US Constitution was pretty weird and stupid, but now I can see why it's there. And it was put there, you know, the founding fathers with all their, or who, you know, the people who wrote the constitution with all their faults and their hypocrisy and all the rest of it, they did build in a structure that makes it very hard for a central dictator to take over. Right. Um, the will of the people is quite important. So, yeah. so I think the US is, is actually, I hate to say it because I didn't grow up this way, but, but it's sort of likely to be a light um, on the, you know, I, I did grow up for way, the way I, the rest of the world is. Yeah. I think also African countries, because they, they are culturally highly skeptical of the West and of big corporations because of their colonial history and of being told what to do. I think they will also um, not be part of this, by and large, not be part of this mess. But so I don't know. I, I think we, we're heading for an interesting time. It's a bit of a mixed bag. But um, and I think public health is going to be used for fascism in large parts of the West, as it is in perhaps in Asia as well. But I think there are areas that it won't be possible and it's going to be interesting. All right. Well, perfect. So thank you so much. Um, I uh, commend my, my viewers uh, and listeners to um, seek out your article. I'm going to put a link to it um, and I'm in your debt. I hope you can come back uh, because I, I learned so much uh, uh, listening, uh, which again is not my strongest quality. <laughs> Um, but I've learned a lot about Zika reading your articles. So. I appreciate that. And um, so why don't you stick around? We're going to chat a little bit. But for the rest of everybody, thank you so much. Uh, please uh, share this, pass it around. Uh, let us know how we can help you further, uh, if at all. And, um, you know, be vigilant. Uh, you know, try, try to uh, think about, I guess, uh, your own best interests and whether they've been handled well over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, an educated population is the strongest, in a sense, mm. vaccine against uh, the, uh, make an analogy against the virus of authoritarianism. So uh, thank you so much, David. Uh, please come back and uh, appreciate all of those who uh, uh, listened and stuck it out. Thanks, sure. All right.